0: Imagine the emotional roller coaster you'd be on if you spent your entire career chasing after this elusive dream that you wanted for yourself, right? And even your dad, you're following in your dad's footsteps, and your dad says, Nope, don't do it, son, go in a different direction. You ignore his device, like all of us boneheaded teenagers in early 20 years. And we keep going, I don't know if 20 years is the word, but we keep going after this elusive goal that we think we want. And then we start talking to industry experts. Are not experts necessarily? Yeah, they're experts, but they're more so veterans, is the label I want to use. And those veterans are leaving you a trend of breadcrumb saying, "Get out of the business. Don't do this. My life sucks." That is what a guest and I today are going to talk about, and then we're going to fast forward ten years from that emotional roller coaster our guest today, Mr. Brian C. Adams, had and realized once he made that leap, now he's raised over $110 million and is an extremely successful real estate investor. But before we get into today's episode, with Mr. Brian C. Adams and the awesome content that he delivers for us, I could use your help. I am writing a book. It's one thing I've, I've let several people know, and I want you, the podcast listener, to know about what I'm doing here, because one of my one of my B-hags, right for the W2 capitalists is to help one million people depend less on their jobs for to provide for their families. And the way you do that is with your very first deal, right? You get over that analysis paralysis, and I'm writing a book about that whole process. So in order for the book to be a success, I need members of my launch team. Now, now what's involved in being part of a launch team or what is a book launch team? I am super glad that you ask. It's something super simple, right? So here are a few activities that will be asked of you if you're going to join me and be part of the book launch team. Number one, you buy a discounted copy is typically 99 cents. The week, the book is released on Amazon, right? The second thing is you write a quick and honest review. Uh, Amazon does like for you at least to consume at least 25% of the book. Now, this is a very short book. If you're familiar with a go giver, think of kind of that style of writing and storytelling and, and link, right? So it's a very quick book. Number three, the third thing I would ask of you, if you're going to want to be a part of the launch team is to share your purchase on social media. And then the fourth thing I would ask of you is to tell at least five people about the book. Again, I want to impact over a million lives. And I think one of the best ways to do that is through written media. These activities will spark interest and get the book ranked higher in Amazon's ratings and reviews. And that will in turn allow more people to see and enjoy the book. And hopefully my desire for this is to inspire them to take action, right? So if you want to join and be part of the book launch team and get inside information on what the book's about and help me choose the cover design and and chapter names and book titles and all that, then go to w2capitalist.com forward slash join my team. It's w2capitalist.com forward slash join my team. Guys, I could really use your help on with this book to be a huge success and that can't happen without your help. So as soon as this episode's over, go to w2capitalist.com forward slash join my team if you're interested in being part of the book launch. What's up everybody my name is jay helms founder of the w2 capitalist podcast and movement and today i am super excited to talk to mr brian c adams uh we were just talking a little bit before we officially hit the record button actually that's a lie i was hitting record and we were talking about it but we're going to cut probably out (laughs) of that stuff but uh, about private lending private capital whatnot so Brian is the guy I want to talk to you today about because he, he is the president and founder of Excelsior Capital where he spearheads the investor relations and capital market arms of the firm. 10 years of experience in real estate private equity and has advanced knowledge and best practices for strategic real estate investing which I hope we get into and prior to forming Excelsior Capital Brian co-founded Priam Properties You got it. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, An institutional real estate private equity sponsor. And in 2010 and provided leadership and direction for the firm in connection with capital markets, investment management, and investor relations. Dude, I am just impressed with your risk. I am so excited to talk to you today about this. And and for those of you listening, I want to, uh, or watching, whatever the case may be, I want to apologize in advance Brian and I were just singing our woes about how we're struggling with allergies and and uh, how we're struggling with them this year, uh, more so than before, but I'm going to do my best job at hitting the mute button and my editor is going to do the best job at keeping the coughing Ooh, and the yeah. sneezing out of your ears. But if something happens, I apologize.
1: I'm going to apologize in advance. So Brian, welcome to the show, sir. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was reading. I'm in Nashville. You're in kind of North Florida area. Um, we've had on average we've had over 6 inches more of rain than usual in this part of the world and i've been struggling um this week is specifically so we'll we'll manage through together we'll we'll do it
0: and it's weird because usually the rain is what washes away all the pollen and everything that goes away so i don't counterintuitive uh, but whatever it is it is it's crazy so all right so brian not only do you lead excelsior, excelsior capital but you're also an investor yourself right so Correct. let's let's go back to that very first deal if you can remember it you know you started investing what what drove you to seek out real estate investing because you had another career right
1: That's right. So uh, I'm a recovering attorney is kind of how I put it. Um, And that's a good segue maybe into, I'll do a brief background. So I'm a New Yorker, married a Nashville girl, um, lived in the Northeast for a bit, went to law school up in Boston and been back in middle Tennessee for 15 years now. And I was extremely fortunate on many levels to marry my wife, which she would, you know, uh, tell you all about, but, um, Let's make sure she listens to this <laughs> podcast
0: and, and, uh, you know, she hears you say that to the world, yeah, yeah. although she's probably heard you say it before,
1: but she's heard this <laughs> line before. And today's her birthday. Actually. Um, what's your wife's name? Uh, Jesse, Jesse. Happy birthday, Jesse. <laughs> Dr. Adams. Um, wow. So look at you. good. <laughs> climbing the ladder story of my life. Um, and her family has a single family office based here in Nashville. So, I didn't know anything about private equity alternatives, you know, outside of the legal fundamentals of real estate. Didn't really understand any of it, but I I got plugged in to what the family was doing, being an LP or co GP or doing direct deals, um, and so I got to meet some sponsors and other groups and became enamored with with real estate as a business, as an industry. Just think, it's an incredible way to create wealth um, and also to to build a business around it. For a whole host of reasons, and so that—that's really that was kind of one part of it. And the other part was, I've been practicing law for about four years, five years, and I was working at the prosecutor's office, the district attorney general's office for Nashville, Davidson County. Great job, but the kind of thing you do for three or thirty years, like there's not a lot of in between there. I knew I didn't want to be a lifer. I just spent all this time having coffee with these partners at these big law firms trying to get a litigation gig. And uniformly, they were all like white guys, obviously. They all said, hey, this is a great business, you know, maybe we can help you out. But, you know, honestly, if I were your age, I would go on the deal side and not the servicer side and not be a vendor with these with these acquisitions. I'd get, you know, if you have the ability to get in on the sponsor side. And they were all like pretty miserable with their lives. Um, definitely, <laughs> they were suffering from golden handcuffs, where they were making just enough money to like live the life that was expected of them, but they never had enough to break free or do something entrepreneurial. Most of them were divorced, not have great family lives. They're working a ton, and what I realized was that business, like a lot of professional services businesses, one they're they're kind of a pyramid scheme. It only works if you get younger people to come in and buy into the partnership so that you can leave, which I think is problematic. And two, the value you create for the enterprise is directly correlated to how much time you don't spend with your friends and family. It's not really a matter of the quality of the product. I mean, obviously there is some part of it, but most of the time it's just how many hours you're putting in. And I just didn't want that to be my legacy. Uh, So all these things-
0: Can we pause right there for a minute? Cause I think for the listener, you know, I want you guys to hear what what, uh, Brian just went through is he went to and it doesn't matter what job or career you're wanting to get into or what what field you're in you went to guys who have been in that business for decades and said and basically getting advice hey how do i get to where your level is at and and two things i think happened there number one you recognized because they probably didn't come out and say hey i have a miserable life uh i i've i you know i don't want to do this anymore. I, but I have to, because of the life I've, I've built for myself. Uh, and you picked up on all of that. And I think there's lots of that that goes on a lot of, a lot of different industries. And number two, these guys moved you. Like they said, Hey, don't follow my path. Like get on the other side of this stuff and you can, uh, be a lot more successful, be a lot more happy, have a lot, uh, healthier family life. And you took that advice. And and I want to tap into that just a minute, because you spent I don't I didn't go to law school, but I'm pretty sure it cost a lot of money to get through law school. You're working for a district attorney, which, um, you know, I'm a fan of the show Billionaire. So that's where I get my sense of what the district attorney does and and whatnot. And um, but you spent, you know, four or five years of your life building into this career and. All of a sudden, you're talking to these, what could be mentors, and they're like, get out, get out. You know, how did that, how did that make you feel? Like, what is, did you, initi- did, did you just grab onto it? Or you're like, man, these guys are crazy.
1: Uh, you know, so walk us through that. How did that, how'd that make you feel? Uh, A lot of emotions. One of them was regret that I didn't listen to my own father, who's an attorney that told me not to go to law school. (laughs) But I was way too bullheaded and stubborn to listen to him. But I think he was right. Um, Right. He is right. Um, And also a sense of just lost, lost opportunity for a lot of these people who are exceedingly talented, hardworking, industrious people that had I think in a lot of ways been sold a bill of goods um, by law school, by the industry, um, and the, the culture of the firms they were working at. And when they look back at their career, I don't think if you got them introspective, I don't think they were you know, too happy with how things played out. And um, being somebody who experienced 2008 as a professional, I also realized really quickly that these firms like a lot of professional services firms purposely make sure that you don't have a great network to make sure to to so that they have leverage over you if anything were to happen you don't have a lot of people to reach out to 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 help or if you need to make a move or a transition and I never really wanted to be in a place where somebody could come into my office with a cardboard box and say Yeah. Hey, Hey, today's the day you got to, you got to go. Now there's a whole lot of other risks associated with doing what I did. And I don't know if I would do it today, looking back on it, but yeah, here I am. But it it felt like just kind of sadness in a lot of ways um, for, for them. And it may be to your point, they didn't come out and say all these things necessarily, but when you start hearing the same things over and over again from different people, um, and the fact that you could just kind of move laterally, but you could never get out of the out of the game, I didn't really want to be a part of that ecosystem. Yeah, and and that's I think that goes with any industry
0: that uh, you don't have to be just a lawyer. I think you labeled it very appropriately in the professional service business, which is where I came from, and it was a lot of that uh, as well. Um, I, you know, it's it's interesting. You're saying all this. and and, as I'm thinking, you know, I've got a couple of real estate investing mentors in my life and and guys who are full time. They've been in it full-time for decades as well. Um, I don't know of a real estate investor who has the same outlook, who who I don't know of a, a single real estate investor that that I talked to uh, or I've ever talked to briefly. I mean, this is like show 160 something on the podcast. So there's at least 160 folks there that has said, don't get into real estate investing. You know, I, I, I don't know of anybody I've ever talked to about real estate investing who's done it. Now, the people who have not done it typically push you away, you know, like my friends and my uh, family. Yeah, <laughs> but right. but um, anybody who has done it for a long time they all encourage you or they at least encourage me, Hey, follow in my footsteps, right? This is an amazing life. So it's, it's, it's incredible to think how you painted that picture uh, of, of that. So that that's very cool. That's very, very neat. Um, all right. So, so you've had this epiphany. I no longer want to be a lawyer. What happened next?
1: Um, yeah. So I, <laughs> had this epiphany. Um so starting- it happened overnight, right? I mean, it was just it was just like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was it, it took some time, and then I got there, and then my hand was kind of forced by some professional issues within the the group I was working with. And I had my oldest was one year old at the time. And I realized, like, this is my crossing the Rubicon moment. This is the chance where, you know, I'm out of an age and uh, fortunately, because of my wife's family, I had the ability and the opportunity to go take a risk, and just kind of jumped right in and had coffee with anyone that would have coffee with me and talked to a lot of people. And fortunately, connected with my business partner, who's also a New Yorker, who married a Nashville girl, and we started raising money from friends and family, uh, started a fund, I started doing deals in Nashville, and we've pivoted a bunch and learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes, which I'm sure we'll get into, but that was the start of it. And that was 11 years ago now. That's awesome. And I, I just Googled
0: crossing the Rubicon. Cause I don't, mm. I, I haven't heard that, but basically it's uh, pass a passive point of no return, right. Burn the bridges, get it. It made me not burn the bridges, but
1: <laughs> yeah, there's, 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 there's like no turn.
0: There's no turning back. No yeah. turning back. That's it. that's a, I always go back to, uh, Oh man, what is that Sean Connery movie? Um, I don't know. He's got a famous line that's like this and I'm butchering it. But anyway, I'm going to try to find it, put it in the clip for YouTube. But anyway, um, all right. So now you kind of got your grounding, you know, and, and I love that you mentioned your kid where you're like, cause that was epiphany for us, right? When we, I was caught up in corporate America, a lot of things were going on and, you know, being six months pregnant when I found rich dad, poor dad. And I just had this aha moment. Like, holy oh, crap! I've been doing this wrong for twenty-something years. Time to change, right? Um, but regarding you, you had an initial goal of getting like, what was your first? What's your first deal look like? How did you make that transition um, of getting that first deal done? Because that seems like the one of the biggest pain points for every real estate investor is getting that first deal done. Because there's a there's a We're talking about getting uh, shots for uh, helping with our allergies and that steroid shot. It's almost like that first deal is the adrenaline shot or the confidence shot that you get to realize you can do this. And the next deal and the next deal and the next deal just keep going easier and easier and easier. Tell us about that first deal.
1: Yeah, it was a it was an off market opportunity brought to us by a brokerage relationship. It was a small building on Music Row in Nashville, which has now become kind of um a very hot submarket but at the time it was yeah. Yeah, <laughs> at the time it was still pretty sleepy um and it was a small office building with two tenants and it was a cash flow play which we when we thought we might have some long term upside associated with it and um it was super painful to get done i mean obviously anybody who's done one of these things realizes um but if you haven't just managing all of the third parties um, and getting transactions done. I mean, to our conversation earlier, I don't know how these transactional attorneys aren't just all, you know, zombie alcoholics, because like (laughs) doing this all day, every day, managing multiple acquisitions or dispositions, it's horrific. Um, It's very challenging. So it was definitely a learning experience. It ended up being a great deal to make a long story short, a couple of years later, a group, um, a multifamily developer wanted to parcel up our property with a bunch of others. And now there's, um, it's, uh, like a class A multifamily deal that is on yes. that property. So it was a good, it was a good return, but yeah, the first one was just, you know, I think to your point, we knew that we had, we weren't trying to force a deal, but you go out and tell all your friends and family, you're doing this. And if you have to do something, um, you start to, to really struggle and overthink things. And, yeah. So we found a small little <laughs> deal and executed on it. You
0: said uh, somebody came to you and said, Hey, let's parcel this up and let's divide this up, whatnot. Did y'all have it up for sale? Did you, is just somebody? So, and broker for those of you listening, you're, you're shaking your head. No,
1: right? Yeah, no. <laughs> so uh, it was, I mean, whew, the broker earned his fee on this thing because Music Row, you, you know, historically, has been owned by people in the music industry who are great, but like terrible to do business with. Not because they're <laughs> not smart, just because they operate in their own world. They're very difficult to get a hold of. They they keep odd hours. It's just a different breed, right? And so this person had managed to put, gosh, probably an acre or two, uh, which in that part of the world is pretty substantial, and it probably involved six or seven uh, property owners. Wow. And so he had managed to bring us all together um, and he ran a process and we had a bunch of developers interested. This is probably in 2000, gosh, 2012 timeframe. Uh, so Nashville was really starting to heat up and uh, land assemblies were getting harder and harder. Um, so yeah, he just called me up Is somebody I knew through having coffee meetings and I said, you know, if you make me an offer, I can't refuse. Obviously, we're going to going do this and talk. Yeah. Pretty wild, actually. We'll go down the rabbit hole here for a minute. The tenant who had occupied our building was very challenging to work with it's a music publishing company, old school. The guy's name was Butch. And um, <laughs> that's my father in law's name. I love yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> and he just didn't care about my deal or whatever, right? Which I get. And, uh, so he was playing hardball with us. We were going to have to figure out a way to like find him a new space or move him. He wanted to get economics, etc. And probably a month or two out from when the transaction was going to occur, this was a deal killer. And they had been a day late paying their rent. And that caused their lease to be canceled. So wow. like two months out from this whole thing going down, I couldn't figure out what to do with the tenant. They dropped the ball forgot to pay in a timely manner. And that was the ejector seat for them. And that made the deal move forward. Wow. I think Butch still hates me, but. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's why they call it show business, not show friendship. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you
0: you mentioned that um, the Nashville was heating up in 2012, the market was heating up in 2012. And right now it seems like everywhere is hot. It's almost impossible to find a deal uh, people are still doing it, at least they claim they are right now. Um, we'll see in a couple of years how that ends out for them. What do you, th- what do you think? And obviously the, the national market is high right now, where do you think the national market is headed, uh, from this, from this st- standpoint in time, as we record this in may of 2021.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, just to give perspective to people we own, we, we don't know, we've run about 2.7 million square feet total and we're in 14 gotcha. markets out of that 2.7 million square feet, 20,000 is in Nashville. So okay. we are not a big landlord in town. We can't afford to buy anything. We live here, we think it's great, very supportive of everything going on. We think it's wonderful, but it's challenging to do deals in your own backyard when you see the market doing the things that it's doing. And when you have investors that have been long-time landowners locally, look to you to divest into different markets, it's very challenging for us to do something here. So yeah. take yeah. it for what That's it's worth. Point. But if you look at what's been happening, even pre COVID, there's a real trend towards this maturing millennial generation. This is now the largest generational working cohort in American history. It's about 75 million people. They're increasingly entering into a phase of life where they're forming families. It was a bit delayed because of 2008, but they want quality of life, cost of living, and access to single family homes and education for their children. And when you put all that together and you look at what's happening with some of these larger tier one cities and their, the tax liabilities they're facing and the budget shortfalls, I think the Sunbelt in the interior Midwest makes a ton of sense for a lot of people moving. And, and we saw that playing out pre-COVID. I think post-COVID, if we can say we're there, um, what's been more interesting is the employers have started doing relocations or distributed workforces yeah. And COVID's really just allowed them political cover to make moves that they've wanted to make for a long time. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it, it is it's, like the, the, the New York guys, especially were afraid of blowback and they just all decamped to South Florida and Austin and Nashville. And now it's already done. And like New York can't get yeah. the genie back in the bottle, yeah. same on the West coast, et cetera. So I think these cities are really positioned to grow tremendously. I think there'll be a lot of challenges associated with it, but, um, it's pretty clear that like they're going to be winners and they're going to be losers. And you look at the U-Haul numbers, they back all that up. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We, uh, last night, uh, in our mastermind call, we got to talking about, you know, housing bubble 2.0 or whatnot. And I am guilty of this a year ago. I was preaching, Hey, you, you got to sell everything. You know, we got six months to liquidate because we're about to enter this whole thing of, uh, forbearance and, and all this other stuff. And, and, um, uh, now I am convinced, uh, I need to do an episode apologizing for all that because I was completely wrong. Number one, uh, number two, I don't think we're in a housing bubble. I don't, I think we are just at the bottom of what's going to continue to rise. And we got to talking about this last night and, and I'll give you a little quick thing, just uh, the excerpt basically to see if you agree, but, um, demand for how, and I need to preface this with saying real estate is local right? What I'm about to say may not apply to New York because of what you just talked about. But in Florida, absolutely, this is this is the case, right? Demand is extremely high, supply is extremely low. Interest rates are starting to creep up just a little bit. If they keep going up, that means purchasing power is, is going to go down. Um, and then the cost of raw materials, if you can get them, can't get them in a timely fashion right now, but if you can get them are extremely high. So now we have developers slowing down their development because prices are going up in an already, you know, pinned up demand uh, area. And I just, I think as long as it doesn't matter really, I mean, what the Fed does with the interest rate that is going to play some aspect into it. But I, I think we have only seen the beginning of where prices are going to go. And, you know, we were specifically talking about single family rental market, uh, not necessarily commercial and kind of what you're into, but with the single family market, I believe because I focus on rentals, is that rents are going to skyrocket here in the next little bit. And that's going to, you know, because I am super conservative when I underwrite deals and I haven't bought anything for two years because I've been sitting here thinking I, I can't find anything that underwrites and I'm not underwriting aggressively enough to, to, to you know, on the thought course that I'm on now that rents are just going to go skyrocket. Um, however, I am under contract on a 16 unit. Uh, we're going to close here in less than 30 days, cross the yes. fingers, as long as the bank has everything going on. Um, but you know, I, I feel like we've only began to see the increase in single family pricing and, and uh, rental rates. What are what are your thoughts on that? And I know it's a little bit outside of your wheel, wheelhouse, but it all kind of <laughs> affects one another, right? all right guys i want to take a break from the interview with brian and let you know about the w2 capitalist mastermind and where you can apply to join us right so this is a virtual mastermind we talk a little bit about it here in the conversation uh and it is a virtual mastermind it's built for all experience levels and niches of real estate investing we have over 20 calls that are hosted at various times all throughout the month and it's a way for you to get connected with like-minded people from across the country who want to see you succeed, right? Who have been through what you're going through and want to help hold you accountable to building your own success. I'm going to give you the link at the end of the show as well as suggest some next steps for you to take. Now let's get back to the interview with Mr. Brian C. Adams.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, demographics are destiny, right? And when you have this huge generational group that wants, you know, I think one of the realizations I've had is now that I'm getting old, Is pretty much every generation in America for the last 200 years has rebelled against the way that they grew up. And they go away and they like do their thing. They go to a big city, they find a mate. Right. And then they want the same childhood that they had for their kids. Yeah. (laughs) And so when you look at that, I think single family rental and single family purchase were on a boom cycle of the next five or 10 years where. You know, this Wall Street narrative of the, the millennial wearing skinny jeans and eating avocado toast and living in Brooklyn in a walk up is just not true for a large swath yeah. of the population of America. So I don't see any reason there's not enough supply. Um, and, you know, because of everything that's happened the last year with the Fed, people are pretty cash heavy. They're feeling good about the world. And they've seen over multiple cycles that. You know, residential ownership is a really good way to build wealth over time. And I think people are kind of distrustful of the market. And so if they're going to put money to work, it's going to be, you know, buying a home where they want to live. So, yeah, I mean, I'm a believer. I know the average home price in Nashville just hit over 500 grand. Average. Average. The average. I don't know if you guys heard that. Rewind it if you didn't. The average Home price in Nashville, 500 grand. Yeah, it's like 515, I think, were the April numbers. Um, and we're talking about an MSA that's 1.3 million and it's growing. Yeah. And, and a big geographic area. So nationwide you know, that, is what 250, 275, I think. Yeah. That's that, what it is. That sounds right. And you know, the other day I was talking to a realtor, it's probably a month ago. At the time, the total listings in America, in America. Yeah. The total number of listings was like three hundred and fifteen thousand houses. Yeah, there's there's more there's more realtors
0: than there are listings. <laughs> yeah, so by far, right now, it's just crazy. It's crazy. And again, I don't I don't think we're gonna stop. I, I think it's you know I I uh, kind of I'm I'm a little upset at myself for making those predictions and kind of having the doom and gloom. But now I'm I'm now totally changed my. I feel like a politician who's been elected (laughs) to office. So (laughs) Um, you said something earlier I want to circle back to just briefly is that your property was not up for sale, but you got contacted by this uh, folks or folks who wanted to develop it with you. And and just for the listener or watcher, I want to encourage you just because something doesn't have a for sale sign in front of it doesn't mean that it's not for sale. I was riding around the other day with my son. We were looking trying to buy a little small track of land and we pulled up next to one and and he's six and he's so freaking smart. He he said, but dad, there's not a for sale sign in front of it. I was like, son, everything is for sale for the right price, you know? And matter of fact, I called, I called these folks. There was not a for sale sign in front of the property. I looked them up, I called them and they're like, we're under contract. Like, I didn't know it was for sale. They're like, well, what? And these people found us, blah, blah, blah. So I want to encourage you, if you're listening to this, that if you see an opportunity to go after it, even though if there's not a for sale sign up for it, um, uh, it's it's just, it's going to pay off in the long run for sure. You, you mentioned, um, uh, you know, there's been a lot of people that's helped me along the way. I hate the phrase self-made millionaire. I don't think that ever applies to anybody in the U.S., uh, but you, and you mentioned your father earlier who said, Hey, don't, don't become a lawyer. Uh, don't follow in my footsteps, but you've also had somebody who's helped you along the way
1: uh, in your real estate investing career. Tell us a little bit about, about who that is and, and how he helped. Yeah. I, w- I want to take this opportunity to be really upfront and, and straightforward about like the privilege I have by being a, a decently you know, non horrible looking white guy who went to good schools and who married a very affluent family because it's pretty much opened all the doors that I needed to originally and allowed me, I think, to enjoy the um, privilege when I walk into the room that people assume I know what I'm talking about. And that's not the case for a lot of people in America today. Um, That being said, my father in law, who's the patriarch of our, our family office, he invested $100,000 in my first fund, and he made two introductions. And the hardest but best thing I think he did for me was say, I'll make these introductions. You can tell everybody you want that I'm an investor with you. But after that, you got to figure out how to raise capital and you got to do this. And he's always going to be there as a resource and a mentor, but he's not going to have economics or control or tell me what I'm doing right, wrong, etc. And, um, that was really hard because he could have done a lot more. Yeah. But developing and I, that.
0: I appreciate the transparency, but you could have sat back on your hands and did absolutely nothing and, and been okay with it. I mean, a lot of, not you, but a lot of people could have been okay with it, like, Hey, I, and forgive the phrase I married up. I don't have to do anything, you know, I'm, I'm set, but you, you're like, no, how, how do I take advantage of, or not take advantage of, but capitalize on the connections that I have. And I think that's the important thing for people to hear is, you know, if you don't have those people in your circle, you need to get out of that circle, you need to improve your circle. And for you, it may have come a little bit easier. But still, you got to approach your father in law and say, Hey, what do you think about this? And you still have got to have the confidence to have that conversation. Um, I I love that you use the word patriarch. I think that's an underused word in today's today's society. So, uh, thank you for that. Um, you know, and I've approached my parents as well. Now they tell me they don't have the money, but I approach them and they tell me no, and why I shouldn't be investing in real estate. And it's a nerve wracking conversation, but I still, I still talk to them and they're starting to warm up. You know, they're starting to, to kind of see it's, I mean, I've been laid off for a year from the W2. We've got a pretty good cash flowing portfolio and they're starting to warm up a little bit, but they were just here a couple of weeks ago. And, um, you know, one of the things my mom asked me is, Hey, when are you, when are you going back to work? Like, wow, this, <laughs> is what we, this is what I do now. I don't know if you know this or not, but this is what yeah. I do. I'm self-employed from now on. I'm a real estate entrepreneur. So I, I do want to give you credit for having the, the guts to go and have that conversation with them. Cause there's probably a lot of folks out there who are listening to this in similar situations that you were in. And no, I want to make it on my own, right? No, take, use the connections you have. If you don't have the connections, you're going to have to work a little harder. You're going to have to build that circle up, but don't be afraid to ask and have the conversation. And I think that's incredible. And I I love how your father-in-law put it. I'll make these introductions. You can tell them I'm an investor with you. The rest is up to you. And
1: uh, I think that's awesome. I hope to be in the same boat one day. Yeah, it's, it's looking back on it. And this is all relative, right? Because in real estate, there's some big numbers. But I've gone from that initial $100,000 investment to I've raised, I want to say it's like $110 million now. Wow. That's awesome. That's and if people... So this is a shameless plug, but it won't cost you anything. I did a presentation <laughs> about how to efficiently or effectively raise capital as a first-time sponsor entrepreneur. You can check it out. Um, there's no cost, obviously. But I think to your point, a lot of people really struggle with they say well i can't do this because i don't have access to capital i don't have the network and it's more about being realistic with what your network can do for you and you can move up and down that continuum if you work at it but obviously not a whole lot gets done if you just sit at home and say that you can't do it yeah and so you got to get that and, and mindset I think change first you'd be really surprised i think for a lot of people who are thinking about making the jump if you reach out to people and ask for help, you'd be surprised how many people respond. Um, I mean, I sent you a blind email after we connect on LinkedIn to get on the show. I'm not going to bat a thousand on those, but like this is the business we're in. Right. And I tell younger people who want to be on the principal side, that if you think you're going to join my firm and be on the buy side, you're dead wrong because every day we wake up and we sell ourselves to owners so that we can transact and then we pitch investors and like that's the business we're in. And if, if you don't take that seriously, um, and you don't appreciate the fact that this is a sales and marketing position, you're not going to be successful in this industry, period. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I, I love that what, real quick before I forget the presentation that you mentioned, where can people find that? We're we uh,
1: It's on the website as well as our okay. LinkedIn page. Okay. Um, and, you know, just, uh, it's like 20 minutes. Um, okay. I want to
0: go watch it. I, I, cause I'm always looking for that, uh, little tweak or something to help raise. I have not raised 110 million. Uh, so I've got yeah. a little way to go. So if there, if there's some stuff I can learn from you, I definitely want to tap into that. So, uh, folks, I'm going to find that, put it in the show notes, uh, for you. And, uh, so we'll make sure we've got that for you as well. So, um, you know, I, I think incredible, love it. Love every bit of what you just said, Brian. That's awesome. Um, I, I want to talk about two things uh, and we're running up on time. Uh, number one, I'm a big goal setter. I, I love having specific goals. One of the things that you and I uh, talked about, or you fit out in the, in the intake form was, uh, you, you actually find specific goals can be illusionary oh, t- to help me understand what you mean by that. Let's talk about that for a minute.
1: Yeah. So, um, I found that in my career that if you assign a huge amount of value to a specific goal, be it square footage, asset center management, personal net worth, whatever it is, if you, if you ascribe a large amount of, of psychic emotional value to it, I think what you realize is when you hit those numbers, they'll be some of the most depressing days of your lives, of your life, <laughs> because nothing has fundamentally changed, right? And, in some respects, you're limiting yourself, because if you're putting those signposts up and those goal posts up, you're only going to be working towards those things. And for me, a pivot I made probably three years ago was I didn't care as much about goals. Obviously, there are things that do matter in terms of metrics you track and that kind of thing. But I'm more focused on creating systems and processes that allow my company to scale efficiently. Without me necessarily having to work on everything, all day every day. Yeah, the way I think about it is, you know, I've got about twelve hours a day where I can be productive, and still be a decent father and a, and a husband. <laughs> yeah, um, and the rest of it, you just have to delegate or put a system and process in place to allow you to continue to focus on what you deliver the highest and best value to the enterprise on. And I think oftentimes I see sponsors out there saying, "Hey, I'm gonna." I'm going to get a million square feet this year. Like the goal is going to get XYZ AUM. And I think that's the wrong motivation, frankly. And and it could just be marketing. And I understand that. But as an investor, I'm not sure I'd be super excited about that. (laughs) And um, as a sponsor GP, I'm just not sure that's the right way to think about the business personally. So I'd be much more focused on okay, like how can I efficiently grow my company? without me having to just put more of my own time into it, because your time is a rate limiting factor that we all have. Yeah. And you've got to get out of that mindset. Um, you know, famously, Jeff Bezos, he worked from like 10 to seven and that's it. Like he doesn't believe in grinding out huge amount of hours. Um, well, he thinks it's counter- Yeah. He has breakfast with his kids or I don't know about the divorce, but yeah, <laughs> he's, he's a, he reads the paper, like the physical paper breakfast with his kids, works out, rolls in the office around 10, obviously very busy. And then he gets home in time for dinner. Um, And and I think oftentimes we think we can just brute force this growth. And I found that that that's probably not the best way to do this. Uh, I needed to hear that. I don't know if my wife paid you to say that, but I needed to hear <laughs> that. So, uh,
0: I I do want to challenge you on one thing. You're talking about people who, um, and we talk about this all the time in the in the W two capitalist uh, mastermind is setting goals and being very specific about your goals. And there have been times where folks come in and they're like, "Well, this year I'm going to, uh, I want to get 15 doors or whatever the case is, right? A million square feet." And to me, that's not specific enough right because like you were saying, that can you can paint yourself into a corner that hey, you got your 15 doors, they don't cash flow, yeah. they, don't, they don't hit any of your other criteria, but hey that's right. like so it's not specific enough and and when I see those folks who who talk about what you just said, hey, you know our goal is a thousand units for this year, I'm like that's that's marketing uh, if if you're in the mastermind, I'd call you out and tell you that's not specific enough you've you've got it because I mean, if you grind it out, anybody can go get a thousand units, but what, what are you getting? Right. And yeah. what are you providing to your investors? Um, so, you know, get more specific. And, and the other thing I'll say on that topic is, um, my goals are so big and where I want to go that, uh, I know I'll never achieve them because previously to discovering that, uh, a little mindset trick is I would put these goals like you were just talking about, put, put those goals in place, and once I hit them, I'm like, okay, now what? And yeah. I would flounder for like a year, two, three years. And like, what do I do next? And now I've just gotten this huge thing that I'm trying to accomplish. And I've convinced myself I'm never going to accomplish it, but it's about the journey and getting
1: there. So, yeah, um, I mean, if, if anyone ever watched the documentary about Olympic athletes, you know, the fact that such a huge percentage of them suffer from massive depression after their careers wow. are over. I mean, this is the issue, right? You You work so damn hard. Yeah. You get like 200 tenths of a second off your breaststroke (laughs) and you do it. And then you realize, man, like I don't have anything else going on in my life. (laughs) And this is not an applicable skill set for anything else. It's a very challenging way, I think, to live. And and I think you can fall into that trap of being a deal guy. And, And oftentimes when you talk to ultra high net worth individuals or families who are in financial services, especially... Like it's not about the money for them, right? They're just caught up in the game and um, it can become a a toxic mindset. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right, Brian, we're running up on time here, man. I got one last question for you. Uh, If you could go back, right? Think about before your very first deal, we talked a little bit about this before. I want to put a little bit different twist on this, but if you could go back to your very first deal, what advice would you give to aspiring investor Brian, uh, when you're perf-
1: pursuing that very first deal? And I talk about this on my presentation. i would <laughs> I would be less ego-driven and more empathetic with how I structure my business and how I talk to my investors and how I serve my investors. I think a trap that a lot of us fall into is we lead with how great we are, how smart we are, how great this deal is, et cetera without ever really understanding or fully appreciating and truly listening to what our investors want. Instead yeah. of in, instead of bringing them like a shiny object that I found, I would bring them a solution set to their problems and issues, um, which is how we orient things now. But it took me six or seven years of doing it the wrong way to realize that it doesn't have to be that hard. You know, there's, there's some guys, and
0: just for my name was... Um, that ha- that do exactly what you're talking about. It's very ego driven um, with their marketing efforts and, and whatnot. And it's essentially, it's drove me to get off social media. I don't know if anybody listening to this or watching this have realized I don't do a whole lot. I and used to be very active on Facebook and Instagram and all that. I'm now on LinkedIn primarily, uh, but still, it's not what it used to be because of what you just talked about. And, and Lewis Black has, the, I think it's Lewis Black, he has this skit and he's talking about how. Um, if all the countries were in a room represented in a room, the american it doesn't matter why they're there, but the American will walk in and just yell out, I'm the greatest here, you know, and Mm -hmm. bleep out the effort. But, uh, there are a lot of folks who, who are doing exactly what you just talked about. And, um, I, I love that less ego, more empathy and man, I hope, I hope the folks that I'm talking about, they, I don't know if they know who they are, but listen to that, tap into it. I'm uh, not my position to call you out, but it's, it, uh, that really hits home. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, Brian, I, I have enjoyed talking to you, man. I think we made it through without coughing and sneezing. In the, in, <laughs> we both have been very active on the mute button, uh, here. So that, that's incredible. But how can people get in touch with you? What's the best way for people to follow up if they, they want to connect?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I'm, I'm like you, LinkedIn is pretty much the only social media I use, um, but I'm very active on it. So if you want to shoot me a note, uh, ping me and be happy to set up a call um, on LinkedIn. And we also have a really good content on YouTube if you want to check out some of the webinars or, or pieces we've put together. And then the website is excelsiorgp.com, which I know is a handful. Um, but you can go there and you can see the portfolio. And if you want to learn more about what we do, we also have some great resources there, blogs, um, thought pieces, et cetera. Um, And we started up a capital club. So there's anybody out there that wants to, we do once a month. Um, I don't have any economics involved, but if you have a deal or an idea or a thought um, and you want exposure to my network and peers, uh, shoot me a note. I'd love to host you and, and learn more about what the pitch is and maybe get you on there. I just, I, I'm i clicking on your website as you're
0: talking. I, I'm going to, I'm going to check it out. I want to, I'm interested in that. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, all right. I, I lied. I, I said I had one, one last question. I got another question. It has nothing yeah, to do with real estate investing. L- lawyers mm-hmm. typically identify themselves as their first name, middle initial, last name. You're Brian C. Adams, my lawyer, my attorneys, both. I've got two different attorneys I use for real estate investing. They both do that. Right, William, blank last name. Charles, blank last name. Why is that? Why do you guys use your middle initial?
1: <laughs> I can't speak for the other you know attorneys in the world, but for okay, me, look, there's the attorney coming out. And you're giving your disclaimer, right? I'm a conditional response here, but for yeah. me, you know, I'm a product of the '80s and just Brian Adams and the whole like thing. Um, i wanted just to like have a uh, uh a little bit of a mental stop gap between the first you know it's funny because it doesn't come up as much anymore and people that do make those jokes are only older people um but that was originally how it came about and it's just kind of stuck um, gotcha. gotcha okay i can't speak to <laughs> although my dad does that too now that you mentioned that
0: it's interesting so it, it, it's it's for me it's synom- synonymous with uh attorneys lawyers hmm. I don't know probably. why. I've, I've always been curious.
1: I don't think I've ever asked. So it just hit me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, knowing that industry, I think it's probably just because the first lawyer ever did it and everybody just assumes like they have Ball. to do it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, living in Nashville, do you have uh music interest as well? You play the guitar or anything like that? Do you sing?
1: No, I'm I'm not musically gifted myself, but I do enjoy um, drinking beer and going out and listening to other people play music. So um, that's kind of part of the culture here. And I'm excited for it to yeah. come back, frankly, um, yeah. and things are starting to open back up. But now I'm not inclined musically myself, but um, there's obviously just like it's kind of like L.A. Every server or bartender or whoever is like a songwriter or has a side gig and is doing cool stuff, and I, I think it's it's great and fun. But I don't know if you ever serenaded your wife with everything I do. Uh, maybe today will be the day for her birthday there you go. Maybe, you know, that, and then the next <laughs> time I come to the on. show, I'll say like, hey, I'm divorced now. So, you know, thanks so much for encouraging me to do that. <laughs> Let's not do that. Let's table <laughs> okay. that whole
0: idea if you All think right. it's going to take that turn. So, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Brian, great having you on the show. Good to know, getting to know you a little bit better. I'm going to check out everything you got going on at Excelsior Capital and I'll put those links in the show notes as well. Um, thank you,
1: sir. Appreciate Yeah. Appreciate thank you being here. It was fun.
0: There y'all, lots of good nuggets in here. I love the best advice. I think uh, Brian, at least it landed with me, was less ego, more empathy. That's something that's going to echo in my gray matter for a while. So glad that he dropped that. So anyway, here, here's what I recommend for you as a next steps. Number one, Excelsior Capital. I uh, Man, as a mouthful for me. So it's excelsiorgp.com. I'm going to put the link in the show notes as well as look him up on LinkedIn, Brian C. Adams. And if we're, if you and are not connected on LinkedIn, let's connect and then I can uh, connect you with him as well. So um, that link is going to be in the show notes as well. And then I owe you a couple of links. Number one, if you want to join my book launch team, it's w2capless.com forward slash join my team w2capless.com forward slash join my team. And if you want to join the mastermind or excuse me, should I say apply to join the mastermind, uh, because there is a bit of a process Uh, we don't let just everybody in there's a little bit of a process to get you in there, then go to w 2 w capitalistcom forward slash apply it's w2capitalist.com forward slash a p p l y now let's get out there and earn invest repeat